Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. And I'm Shannon Bond. Shannon and I are away this week. We are, of course, in your ears, but we are not doing the show this week. We're a bit busy with other stuff, which includes some exciting projects for this very podcast forthcoming. So instead, we are handing over the reins to John Authors, the FT's senior investment commentator, who recently interviewed Nicholas Sargent, an investment advisor and economist, to discuss his new book, Global Shocks, an Investment Guide for Turbulent Markets. The book presents 10 case studies for investors to consider, starting with the demise of Bretton Woods and through to today's situation in China. Shannon and I will be back at the end of the show to give our long-form recommendations, but for now, here again is John Authors with Nicholas Sargent. I suppose the most important question, given that most of us have lived through a few shocks, but maybe not as many as you have, how have global shocks changed over this period? And is it just our perception that we're getting more of them? Excellent questions. I would say the first is that um, the biggest uh, difference in my career when I started in the early 70s was that we, for the first time, encountered high and variable inflation. And that went hand in hand with a series of currency crises involving so-called high-inflation countries, U.S., Britain, Italy, France. And then there were the hard, low-inflation countries, Germany, Switzerland, Holland. And so, uh, John, the nature of those shocks then was you had to figure out how markets would respond. And um, the basic point about a currency crisis, if, if a currency is depreciating, but it's because the central bank is lowering interest rates. That's not a shock or a crisis. That's a benign decline. So currency crises, as I define it, occurred when um, the currency went down and bond yields rose and stock markets sold off. And so that was uh, investors adjusting to surprise inflation. And we, as they say, saw that throughout the 70s. And really the turning point was around 1979-80, Thatcher in the UK, and then in the United States, Reagan with Volcker, very tight monetary policies. And then we finally saw the weak currencies become the strong, the strong currencies become the weak. So we went through these cycles. But one of the things that I found in, in living through this period, after a while, I could discern a certain pattern of movements of interest rates and exchange rates now and take advantage now of it. You've got a beautiful quadrant in the book, which let's go through this very carefully indeed so that our listeners can try to uh, yes. picture it for themselves in the in the air. Okay. What are the four quadrants? Yes. How do you move yes. around the stages of a financial so crisis? So the way I define the quadrants are on your vertical axis. Think of it as interest rate or interest rate differentials. Let's make it easy. The United States. So if I'm going north, U.S. interest rates are rising relative to abroad. If I go south, the opposite. And then on my horizontal axis is the currency movement. Let's think of it as the dollar. 
To the right, the dollar's appreciating. To the left, the dollar's depreciating. So in the top right-hand corner, it's doing exactly what you'd expect in Samuelson's economics. The rates are going up and the dollar's going up with it. Exactly. And that's, you've latched onto it. I took economics courses and and they always talked about either that northeast quadrant or the southwest quadrant, where I define monetary policy changes are the key drivers of exchange rate movements. What was fascinating to me, though, were the off-diagonals. The, what I defined as a crisis zone, again, is the northwest corner. And what is that? That's the dollar is going down, and investors expect it to go down more, so they require a higher yield premium to compensate them. Okay, so your inflation is going up because your currency is getting weaker, meaning your imports go up, and yet also rates are are going up. That's right. And usually the situation when the central bank raises interest rates so much that it runs the risk of recession actually is the act of creating confidence. Now, these guys are serious. And therefore, as an investor, overseas investor, I'll start putting money into that country. So the classic example from history is obviously Paul Volcker, who did that in spades. Maybe a recent example might be Raghuram Rajan, who got people much more confident about India in recent years, even if that might have changed in the last few weeks as we speak. Uh, Absolutely. So this, it it really, if you say, I lived through the 70s and the 80s, and you, you write the economic history, it's basically a story of a series of currency crises, weak dollar, super strong dollar, weak dollar again. So you asked me the question, John, though, well, what's changed? And I believe that the last 25 years or so, the thing that changed is the central banks who had lost control of inflation said, we are determined to bring it under control. And guess what? By the early 1990s, they succeeded. And so after that, we start, stopped having these dollar crises. They might have moved, but it wasn't the 70s and 80s. But the central banks made one miscalculation, and that was that if we keep inflation under control, that's both a necessary and sufficient condition for financial stability. And what I'm basically arguing in the book It was a necessary condition, but it wasn't sufficient. As I understand that, we now need to add another concept, which we've all heard a lot about in recent years, which is a bubble for which the necessary condition is a credit buildup, which much more easily happens under conditions of stable inflation. Is that what leads to the particularly bubblicious environment of the last 15, 20 years? Absolutely. That, you know, if you think about it, when you have a country with very high inflation, it's going to have very high interest rates. You don't get asset market bubbles with super high interest rates, and credit is being tightened. So to your point, the irony of the situation, and Minsky, Hyman Minsky alluded to it, is that the breeding ground for asset bubbles is when conditions are very favorable. The central bank says inflation's under control, no reason for me to raise interest rates. Um, they don't worry about the availability of credit, which – I would argue they should pay greater attention to, but they don't. And then people start to take on too much debt. And at some point, there's a shock or a surprise, and the process of excess valuations becomes right. over. Nowadays known as a Minsky moment. That's and of correct. course, we had one in 07 that led to a crisis. Exactly. And then you, your first question, you said to me, are we just imagining it, or are these bubbles becoming more frequent. And I'm not the leading economic historian by any means, but I would cite Bob Alaber's work. I even I was reading a book by Tony Beck, 
And they would say, yes, that the incidence of asset bubbles and financial market instability has really increased significantly in this last 25 years or so. Now, that being so, it becomes that much more important to have a playbook for dealing with these. Many listeners will uh, have a fairly accurate, precise memory of what happened in 2008. Difficult to forget if you were there. How did you play 2008 as as an investment manager? And what are the rules we should follow when something as scary as 2008 happens? Well, you have to have a plan. The first step is, have you correctly identified the nature of the problem and the, the underlying cause? And so I want to give you an example going back to 2006, 2007. Most people at the time, including myself, would have said, maybe there's a problem with subprime mortgages. But guess what? It's too small to matter. It can't bring down the U.S. economy. It's just not that much. The argument, though, that is you have to stay flexible. And one of the things, if you say to me, when did I begin to change my view that something bigger was unfolding? In early August of 2007, I wake up, come to the office, and find suddenly European central banks have to flood their market with liquidity. And I'm saying, what's going on? I thought the U.S. was the problem, and suddenly it spread to Europe. Well, then my folks at the office started to explain to me, well, Nick, we have this problem with SIVs. I thought they said SUVs. Structured investment vehicles. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, John, I'm embarrassed to say I've been in the industry. I didn't know what they were. And I finally found out that, oh, these are off-balance sheet entities that don't count when uh, the regulators go in and say, how leveraged are you? They're off-balance sheet. Is there an uh, analogy here with plumbing that, uh, uh, yeah. that basically if you're even talking about the plumbing in your house, it's got to be bad news? Generally speaking, if it's working at all, you should know little or nothing about it. The uh, sieves were very similar in that respect to the pipes in our house. Uh, that's a very good analogy. And, and so what I'm basically saying then is, so at first, I think I misdiagnosed the problem. And if you like, I listened too much to the Federal Reserve's assurances that um, this problem is not that big a deal. We know what to do. And really, I didn't know the outcome. But I think the most important point I'm trying to make is that in the diagnosis phase, you must be flexible. As new information is coming in, you have to say, wait a minute, something more is going on. And we revised expectations. And basically, by the end of the year, where we were, you said, how did you get through this? We went to our our senior risk committee and said, we're worried. We think something Big is about to unfold, but we have no idea when, how much. But we think we should start to take some chips off the table, build, if you like, a war chest, because we suspect assets will sell off. Let's keep some powder dry. So that was our first um, attempt to deal with it. And you may ask me, well, how did you actually do? That was the idea. I wouldn't, I would, I'd grade us as a C in implementation. We did that for a while. Then we had um, the problem with Bear Stearns, and that was scary. But the Fed came in and aggressively eased, and the markets calmed. And so we decided, well, let's pause. So we didn't follow. in selling at that point. That's correct. Thinking that, well, maybe this will finally do the trick. So we made a mistake. But, uh, John, again, so first step is diagnose the problem. Second step is 
diagnose the policy response. Some people will say all bubbles play out the same. I disagree. Look at Japan. It's still working its way out. Look at the U.S. Our asset markets are at record highs. And I would argue the critical difference was the Japanese policy response was too tight for too long. They didn't know how to tackle deflation. I would argue in the U.S. case, Bernanke, who made mistakes in the run-up to the crisis, saw the error of his ways, and we dodged the worst um, outcome. So here's my illustration. By the latter part of the year, we saw asset values for world equity markets off close to 40%, 50%. And we started to say, wait a minute, we think policymakers have seen the errors of their way. Valuations are compelling. Should we now go back into the market when everybody was scared, including ourselves? And basically, we decided to take a step-by-step approach. I said, my fellow on equities was urging me. He said, Nick, this is the cheapest valuations I've seen. Let's go into equities. And I said, I have to be confident that the banking system will stabilize. But my corporate bond portfolio manager said, Nick, this is the best buying opportunity in my career, investment grade. So first step, go into something that we had confidence in. We did corporate bonds. Second step, went into junk bonds below investment grade. That was probably January, February. Third step was once we passed the stress test on the financial system, we were willing to dip our toes back into equity markets. So if I could try to sweat that down, one key point is watch the central bank like a hawk. And if you have to follow them rather than preempting them, never mind, it's still worth the effort. Secondly, cash is a good idea. We had Mohamed El Arian on this show a while ago. Are you suggesting cash for optionality, for the ability it gives you to dive in somewhere quickly more than for the conservatism of being less likely to lose money? Yes, and I think I don't have any problem with cash. Some people say the ultimate um, optionality is gold. It can do well in an inflation environment. It can do well in a crisis environment, but it's not liquid. But but I would say is the following, though, is it's always a matter of balance. You know, So we had increased our cash holdings during the downleg phase. But I would tell you that we didn't go to the extreme. Maybe, you know, normally, if we were worried, we might have 5% cash. So maybe we did 10. But we didn't do 50% cash. Um, we're backing. Our parent is an insurance company. We have to back product. Now, let's move on to perhaps the biggest question ahead of us. As we record this, we've just had an election. We are going to have a change of political regime, and it looks like we've had a change of market regime. People are trying to come up with all kinds of historic parallels for what lies ahead under Donald Trump. One very popular version is Ronald Reagan. Does it make sense to compare what we're going to have to Ronald Reagan? Do you see a sensible parallel at the moment? We have historically unbelievably expensive bonds, even if they've just come off the very top, and pretty seriously expensive stocks. Do you see a a parallel between a political event like this and markets being positioned as they are? The part that I say study Reaganomics is the policy part where basically with Reagan, we favored lowering marginal tax rates for corporations and individuals. And at the same time in Reagan's case, he favored increased defense spending as Trump is alluding to. However, Ronald Reagan differed with Trump in saying, 
we have to then keep the budget under control by controlling non-defense spending. Well, that was the, the, the game plan, but he had to deal with a Congress that was democratic and said, no way under our watch do we allow you to increase defense spending and then cut back on social spending. So basically, they had to strike the grand bargain, and the budget deficit blew out. Here's the, 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 the subtlety. Under that scenario, we had record high interest rates, but that was because of inflation and inflation expectations. The one thing Volcker achieved was a reduction of inflation expectations. So nominal bond yields came down. However, if I adjust that for the inflation, real interest rates, meaning nominal bond yields minus expected inflation, actually rose. But the good news for the Reagan administration was they at least faced falling bond yields. So now let's go to Trump. The parallel is tax cuts plus deregulation. The difference is he is less concerned about overall spending and, in my judgment, runs the risk of a significant increase in the budget deficit in the out years. In this case, starting with record low interest rates, as you're saying, to me, the correct call that the market is anticipating is that bond yields in the United States are headed higher. That's the part that I say is useful to study the Reagan period. Now, what, what do I think is the biggest difference in the wild card? Ronald Reagan was at heart a believer in free trade. Donald Trump at heart is a mercantilist. Trade deficits are bad. Trade surpluses are good. So what I see as potential conflict situation is that he's already pointing to big deficits with the U.S. has with, uh, say, China or the like. Well, let's think this through. If we have fiscal stimulus, both increased spending and less taxes, that means more U.S. imports. The U.S. dollar has been rising is at about a 13-year high on a trade-weighted basis. My second greatest conviction is that the dollar will continue to rise either because we're growing faster or because the Fed can now start to tighten monetary policy more than it has, whereas Europe and Japan are still in easing mode. So what I think um, President-elect Trump is going to learn is that macroeconomic forces are moving in the direction of larger budget and trade deficits for the United States, which he doesn't want. So what do we do? We'll do what we did back in the 80s. We blame Japan. And um, this time it will be China. So my, you know, my argument is right now the stock market is reacting to first-order effects, lower tax rates, deregulation. Of course, every stock market likes that. But if we now go and say, folks, bond yields are already up um, you know, 50 to 75 uh, basis points since the election, and this isn't necessarily a forecast for 2017, but give me time bond yields continue on a rising trend. Maybe the economy grows more. Maybe that's good for corporate profits. But I have to discount those earnings at higher bond yields. So to me, this, how the stock market plays out is ambiguous. I, I'm, I'm trying not to be the two-handed economist. But, and then if you throw on and you say what would be the worst outcome, uh, we get into an unnecessary trade war. Final question. On the issue of assets bubbles and credit buildup, we've had historically low rates for eight years. We have an immense amount of corporate debt. Do you think it makes sense to use the word 
bubble about what has happened in corporate credit? Is there a risk of the bursting of a bubble in the U.S. if rates rise? I'm not overly concerned about the United States. I do concede that there has been some buildup. Um, and you know, part of that, I think, also is um, you know, I've had debt for equity swaps uh, and the like. But, um, John, I think globally, and I'm basing this off research for the Bank of International Settlements, when they look at the buildup of debt worldwide, they would say that the areas to be monitoring on the corporate side are many of the emerging economies, of which China is probably the one that stands out the most. So I'd be more worried on the corporate debt side there than in the United States. A sobering but useful guide to where we are. Global Shocks, an investment guide for turbulent markets. My name is Sergeant. Thank you very much. Thank you. And it's Cardiff again back in the studio. I'm here with Shannon just to do some long-form recommendations before we wrap up. Shannon. It's been a while since we've done these. I know. We, we had to bring it back for the show that we're not even doing. We're not That's even true. here right now, but we can't, so to speak. We can't miss this opportunity. Well, I'm going to uh, use our absence as an excuse to recommend two things. Um, I've been catching up on a lot since I was gone on maternity leave, including podcasts. I found actually without commuting, I was listening to a lot through a podcast. I know people will be shocked to hear that. But this is probably news to nobody, but I found a couple that I really like. I just this week binge listened to In the Dark, um, which was a podcast that came out in the fall from American Public Media. It's an investigative podcast about a unsolved or until very recently unsolved abduction and murder of a little boy in Minnesota. And for people who liked Serial, it's kind of in that vein. I'd argue it's actually better than Serial, even though you actually you know who did it from the beginning. But the podcast is so, not so much about sort of taking you through the lurid details of the crime and like looking at all the suspects. It's actually an investigation of the investigation that was done and a broader look at the fairly dismal state of policing in much of the U.S., and I found it fascinating and harrowing, but really, really gripping. That's interesting, because I guess Serial, in some ways, was itself an investigation of a much earlier investigation, but you were sort of going along for the ride, and the outcome was sort of undetermined, Um, and so there was always the risk at least in the first season, uh, that you'd get to the end of the podcast uh, season and you still wouldn't know what the hell had happened, right? Right. I mean, uh, there was, yeah, and definitely sort of lacked a sense of closure. And actually, in, in a lot of ways, In the Dark doesn't have a particularly satisfying sense of closure, even though the person who's, who did this has been arrested and is in prison. But um, what I found satisfying was that they used this this story to tell a much larger story, to tell like a, a really important, pretty untold larger story. And that I was just totally along for the ride. And then the second thing I'm going to recommend is just a bit on a bit of a lighter note, because I think some of us have needed uh, lighter or distracting things in our life recently. I really enjoyed uh, an episode from the fall from the, the podcast Reply All, um, which is a podcast about the internet. It was called Hello. And basically the conceit was the two hosts uh, had a phone line that people could call into and they stayed up for 48 hours taking phone calls. Um, And then they put out an episode that was the edited result of that. It's a little bit of a performance art type piece in a way, but it was really super engaging. It was just kind of fascinating to listen to both kind of the what it was like as an experience for them to try to do this absurd thing. And also the kind of fascinatingly unexpected 
connections they were able to make with people. And I think you know, I've been thinking a lot about the, the connections we can make with people we know and the people we don't know in our lives and, and those sort of communities and how important they are these days. Yeah, I loved that episode. I heard it too. Uh, my favorite part was the kind of unexpected moments where people were a lot more revealing about their lives, uh, including their internal lives. Yeah. Uh, than you would expect in a show like that, right? Well, there's uh, something about speaking to a stranger, actually, right, that can maybe help lower your inhibitions? Possibly, uh, in the sense that since you're telling it to a stranger who you might never see again, yeah. you're not as worried about being judged. Right, um, the repercussions are different. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought you're, that was You're, you're, you're only sharing it with their tens of thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands <laughs> of actual listeners everywhere <laughs> throughout the U.S. and the world. Uh, but a really amazing podcast, and I, I still kind of think that uh, in the realm of nonfiction podcasts that attempt to tell stories, there is Reply All, and then there's everybody else. Oh, I'm yeah. not really sure that anything else comes close. No, and what, and part of it is that they don't actually have a consistent thing that they're trying to do. Like that, po- for me, what I love about that podcast is that it's about experimentation. That they try a lot of different things. They do different forms and so you don't know what you're expecting week to week and that's fantastic and my recommendation is a book called what is populism by jan werner Mueller. it's a short book but still longer than most of the things we we give in our long form recommendations it's only about 100 pages but it it does exactly what its title suggests it does which is it offers a very useful definition of populism which is something that i think is very much needed right now yep and because, the age of trump and the age of everything happening in europe right but w- one of the difficulties is that actually the way populism is understood in the us is very different from the way the word is used in europe in the us it's often thought to be very similar to just bog-standard economic and political policy that tries to address the needs of an aggrieved group of voters. Mm -hmm. And that by itself is fine. It's just that it tends to have nasty side effects like isolationism, like nativism, in some cases racism. Mm -hmm. And this actually isn't a very useful way to think about the word because then it's hard to distinguish from just what you would expect of democratic politics from time to time, Mm -hmm. right? Mueller offers what I think is more closely associated with the European understanding of populism, which is that, yes, like other kinds of authoritarian uh, regimes, it does have a very strong anti-elitist sentiment appeal, right? It does have a lot of corruption. It does have clientelism and things like that. But the key distinguishing factor between what you get sometimes in Democracy Gone Awry from populism is that it also has a very exclusive definition of who gets to consider themselves a legitimate part of the people Mm -hmm. of a country, right? So in other words, it's a very exclusive definition of the word. And this has all kinds of fascinating implications for who ends up being considered a populist and who doesn't. In the U.S. context, very briefly, I'll give you one example. A lot of people, for instance, consider Bernie Sanders to be a populist because he has a message that says, hey, the 1% has been ignoring the 99%. But actually, Bernie Sanders has never argued that, say, the Republican Party is not a legitimate political party. He's never tried to delegitimize people who disagree with him. This is very different from a lot of the rhetoric that Trump has used, Mm -hmm. right? So by Mueller's definition, Sanders is not a populist, but Trump very much is a populist. And you can see it in all the commonalities between the way that Trump speaks and the way that other populist leaders of the past have spoken. So in any case, uh, a very, very useful book and a very useful lens through which to see uh, what's happening now in the U.S., but also obviously uh, throughout Europe. So, yeah, check it out. 
And that is all the time we have for today's show. Again, Shannon and I will be back with a full episode of Alpha Chat next week. Thanks for listening. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.